He'll take you to your, to your classroom there. My name is Scott Pontier. I'm a lead pastor here at Jamestown Harbor. If you're new here today, really, really glad to meet you. If you're old here today, also glad to have you uh, here as well. Um, today, we're, we're taking the next step in a series we started last week, Sunday. Uh, it's a series that we're calling Why the Church Matters. Uh, and in particular, we're talking about different commitments that help make the church matter and help make the church relevant and kind of keep us together. And as I was preparing this week, I was thinking kind of about this idea of being together and what keeps us together. And it, and it strikes me because today in the culture that I find myself in, uh, it seems like the idea of togetherness or partnership is becoming increasingly optional. Uh, and, and even irrelevant in the world. Uh, in fact, I, I, gotta, I gotta make a confession. Uh, last night, I was texting with my friend, Joe Shemansky, uh, who is a Michigan fan. And I said, Joe, I'm gonna say this with all honesty. I might be willing to switch as a Spartan fan for a long time. And I, I meant it for only a moment, but I did mean it. Uh, because it seems like togetherness and partnership is becoming increasingly optional. In fact, even over the last two weeks, if you've been watching the news, our our national house of representatives has been unable to elect a leader, a speaker of the house. In fact, some of the party members are even shouting down members of their own party for trying to work with the other party to make something happen. So what is it that holds us together when nothing seems to stay together? I mean, certainly uh, for, for, for some of us, like lifelong marriages, for example, are difficult to stay committed to. But even just in regular everyday family dynamics, some of those don't even stand the test of time. Do you have family members that you would say, I'm likely to never even speak to them again? I do. So what holds us together when it seems like nothing stays together? Even across, uh, across the church in today's world, I've been watching this for the last 10 years or so, the idea of denominations, of churches kind of moving together uh, on the same mission together seems to be falling apart uh, every single week. So what holds us together when nothing seems to stay together anymore? Uh, as, as Ben mentioned, we are part of a number of, of churches called Harbor Churches. And, and at Harbor Churches, we believe that there are some essential commitments that when we partner together on them, do hold us together. They make the church work, they make the church relevant, and they make the church matter. And so we, we've kind of used this language, we introduced it last week, this idea of partnership. Let me just give you a way we define partnership uh, in Harbor Churches. We define partnership as an agreement to partner with God in his mission and join together with the people of this church to help people find a way back to God. We are partners together on this mission with each other and with God. And so throughout the series, we're, we're working through this partnership book that you might have got when you came in last week or it's on the table this week. Uh, and even at the end of this series, we're going to give you an opportunity to say, hey, if God's moving in you to, to make a commitment to become a partner, we want to give you that chance. But over the next four weeks in particular, we want to talk about each one of these four essential commitments that we think make us partners together, that hold us together together as the church when nothing seems to stay together. 
And, and I'll just introduce you to, the, to this first commitment we're talking about right now. Commitment number one is this. It's a commitment to say, I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead to be my savior and profess my commitment to his lordship over my life. We call this commitment saying yes to God. And I, I, I've got to be honest with you. I'm a, I'm a pretty skeptical follower of Jesus. I always have been. I, I'm the kind of guy that says, really? Or does that really work? Or I'm going to need to see some like proof of that? Or, or that just seems like words. What does that mean? And so when I approach this commitment, the skeptic in me kind of comes out a little bit. Because what does this mean? What does it mean to say yes to God? What does it mean to profess my commitment to God? What does it mean to, to claim his lordship? Oh, that seems like a lot of churchy words that uh, I need them to be real to me. And so today we're going to talk about that. We're going to try to make this commitment uh, become a little more real to each and every one of us. Because I believe, I truly do believe that this commitment is part of the foundation that holds us together. Everything that we talk about in the coming weeks is going to come out of this commitment in a sense. So luckily, uh, the Bible talks about this commitment. Uh, The apostle Paul writes this in Romans 10. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And famously, perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, puts it this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Sounds great. Also seems super abstract and confusing to me. Just believe in him. Okay. I don't know exactly know what that means. Believe in your heart. Okay. Still feels like the same thing. Declare with your mouth is helpful because it's really specific. Right. But still, it's not quite there. Is that what it means to say yes to God? Is it simply like meeting some requirements or saying the right words with my, I got to say it out loud? I don't know. I'm very skeptical of that. There are people who can't speak. Does that mean they can't uh, make this commitment? And to be honest, for a long time, these ideas that we read in Romans, that we read in John, have been part of the Christian community and how we understand them has changed over time. So much so that perhaps each and every one of us might even have our own version, our own uniquely crafted understanding of what it means for us to say yes to God or to ask Jesus into my heart or to become a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And honestly, for some of us, uh, I would say there's, there's probably three different ways in which we approach this idea often. And one of those ways is that for some of us, it's a matter of, of what I'll call mental assent. It's about mentally agreeing with some statements or ideas, about mentally agreeing with the right doctrine or understanding of faith, that saying yes to God for some of us is essentially a mental exercise in right thinking. For some of us, saying yes to God is a matter of uh, what I'll call fire insurance, right? We say the right words, we follow the right set of rules, and I stay out of the fiery pits of hell when I die, right? We actually had a really great series on heaven and hell uh, at the end of our Matthew series last fall in 2022. Check it out and hear why that is way off base and not how the Bible talks about it at all. 
but some of us, that's how we think about it is fire insurance. And I think some of us also, the third way we can think about it is to think that saying yes to God is like a handful of magic beans, right? It's this incantation I repeat every day. It's this ritual I perform where if I do it enough, maybe something miraculous will just grow up in my life because God said it would, like magic. These are the ways we tend to think about saying yes to God when we hear Ideas like we should declare Jesus as Lord and we should believe in God. But what's most interesting to me is that these are the ways we understand saying yes to God, but it is not the way Jesus talks about it. In fact, there's a very specific story in the Gospels uh, where he discusses this idea and he doesn't talk about fire insurance, he doesn't talk about the afterlife at all right? Or, or mental ascent or, or like these magic beans. Instead, he uses one very specific image and it's really weird. So that's what we're going to talk about today. In John chapter three, we're going to find this story. And so if you want to follow along with us, that's where we're going to be. I'll have it on the screen behind me as well. But in John chapter three, we find a story of a man who approaches Jesus and asks him a question. And this is what he says in uh, John chapter three, verse one. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs, the miracles that you are doing if God were not with them. So let me just pause right there in the story. Because whenever you read a story in the Bible, the first questions you should probably be asking is, What details is the storyteller giving me? What is the author telling me? And why do they feel like I need to know those specific details? So based on what we read, we do know a few things about this person named Nicodemus. Number one, we know his name is Nicodemus. Seems really simple. When I read the Bible, I often just skip right by and go, okay, that's the dude's name. That's because I'm not someone uh, who was a first century Hebrew. For us, when we think about somebody's name, we're like, okay, great. That's what I call him. That's what I call her, right? But in the biblical world, names were not first and foremost about what you call someone. It was about their identity, about who they were, not just what you called them. In the biblical world, your name was was your legacy. It was your destiny. It was your identity. It was etched on you at birth and told a story about who you were to become. So, for example, take Moses. Big name in the Bible, right? In the original Hebrew, Moses means to draw out. And he was named that way because soon after his birth, he was drawn out of a river uh, and adopted by an Egyptian princess. But also, Moses was the man that God used to draw out the Israelites from captivity in Egypt. Moses means draw out. His name is telling us something about his identity. So we know this man's name is Nicodemus. And and Nicodemus comes from two Greek words. The first one, Nikos, uh, which is sort of where we get the word Nike, which is before it was a brand of shoes. It was uh, was a Greek goddess of victory, which also makes it a cool name for shoes, right? Uh, Nikos means victory. and, And demos is where we get words like democracy. It means the people or people. 
So, Nikos, demos, means people's victory. Nicodemus, sort of his identity represents all that people can achieve. He's the full embodiment of people's victory. So he's represented, he's represented to us, I guess, as like some sort of like captain of the football team, right? Like he's a winner. So we know his name. The second thing we know about Nicodemus is that we're told he is a Pharisee. And Pharisees are the most religious people of Jesus' day. They were the religious elite. They were like your super religious grandmother who has a verse for everything, crocheted on every pillow in her house, and you have Thanksgiving at her house, and she grabs your arm and tells you how she prays for you every day, right? Like you respect her, but also like sometimes it's a bit much, right? That's the Pharisees. So we know his name, we know he's a Pharisee, and we're also told he is a member of the Jewish ruling council. The council that John mentions was known as the Sanhedrin, uh, and it was like the Supreme Court of the Jewish world, except there weren't like a few of them. There were, there were, tw- there were 71 men on the Jewish ruling council, so much bigger than our Supreme Court, but still pretty selective. They were the wisest, most respected people in the whole community, And Nicodemus was one of them, one of these 71. So put that all together, the thing we know already about Nicodemus is that he's kind of a big deal, right? Uh, I have a friend from high school who reminds me of Nicodemus. Uh, His name is Tim, and he was the school record holder on the cross-country team. He was a varsity basketball player. He was the homecoming king. Uh, After high school, he graduated first in his class for the United States Naval Academy. He was a captain in the Marines. He studied at Oxford. He's the guy that you tell people you went to high school with, right? Nicodemus is the guy you tell people, I went to high school with that guy, right? That's who he is. And on top of that, this doesn't say this in the text, but if you look at like historical records from the day, uh, we know some other facts about Nicodemus as a person in history. And one of those is that he was really, really rich, In fact, some ancient Jewish writings tell us that Nicodemus was one of the three wealthiest people in all of Israel. And and these sources even suggest that that the wealth of these three people, Nicodemus included, was enough to sustain the entire nation on their own. So you sort of get a feel for this guy. He's one part homecoming king. He's one part pastor. One part congressman or even president. And one part, like, Mr. Monopoly guy with a monocle. That's Nicodemus. And what's interesting is now that I know that about him, it also stands out to me that this is a guy who's sneaking around in the middle of the night to have a conversation with Jesus. I mean, that's what John says, right? That, that this hero of the people is coming to Jesus under the cover of darkness at night. Why? Because I I read that and I go, well, apparently, even though this guy has the perfect resume, something is not right. Something is not right with him. He is not content. Even though he looks like he's got it all together, something just isn't quite fitting in Mr. People's Victory Guy. 
So look again at verse two, right? Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. And then Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, if we stop there for a moment, because first of all, doesn't Nicodemus do the thing that we kind of all think when we talk about saying yes to God. We talk about making that commitment. He's declaring with his mouth who Jesus is. He's naming him as a teacher that was sent from God. At this point, Nicodemus understands Jesus in a way that some of his own disciples don't yet. But this dude, people's victory, hero homecoming king, Mr. Monopoly with the monocle, gets it. And he's saying it out loud. He's ticking all the boxes. And notice that Jesus doesn't say like an answer to him, right? Like he doesn't say like, well, once you believe, then you are born again. He says, you already get it. Now you must be born again. And this is the metaphor that Jesus chooses to use, which is really weird, right? And it raises some questions for me. And it, I'm not alone because it raises questions for Nicodemus too. In verse four, he says, "Uh, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? Like he's asking like real practical questions here. So Mr. People's Victory, not so much a metaphor guy. That's what I'm learning, right? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. So Jesus is like, okay, you don't like metaphors? Uh, Let me give you another one. Now we'll talk about wind and see if that makes any sense to you. It doesn't because Nicodemus says this. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said. You are Mr. Top of the Heap, smartest, best looking, richest guy. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things. I gave you these metaphors. I've spoken to you of things that should be easy to comprehend and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? In other words, he says, I'm giving you metaphors about babies and wind and you don't get it. And you think you're gonna understand if I like delve into the deepest things about what does it mean to be connected to God? You should know this stuff already. You're Israel's teacher. You know the text because believe it or not, the Bible is filled with stories of people being born again. Remember, your name was your identity. It was your destiny. It was who you were. It had been etched upon you at birth. You cannot change your your name any more than you can change your destiny. Except, of course, you know, in the Bible when God does all the time. Because he does. If you read the Bible, God changes people's names a lot. When people are in spots where they feel like they can't change, God says, okay, here's a new name. 
which isn't like going down to the secretary of state. It was, okay, here's a whole new identity. Here's a whole new way to be yourself, to understand yourself, to look at yourself. There's a whole new identity. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you are Israel's teacher. You of all people should know these stories of identities moving through a transition to become something new. God loves giving people new identities. God gives people fresh starts all the time in the Bible. And that, for me, gets a lot closer to what does it mean to say yes to God? What does it mean to be born again is to totally reorder your identity. No wonder this is really hard for Nicodemus. Why, if you're him, would you want a new identity? No wonder this is hard for Nicodemus. No wonder he wants to hide and kind of have this conversation in the cover of night. Because Jesus is talking to him about, listen, if if you want to say yes to God, your whole identity is going to change. There's a lot at stake for him. And so it's within this context, it's within this conversation that that famous verse in John 3, 16 shows up. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, shall walk into a whole new identity and have a whole new life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands, stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying your name your identity that you worked so hard to build, to shape this people's victory that you are, well, you're going to have to turn that one in. That's what it means to say yes to God. If you want freedom, if you want to experience God, you're going to have to turn that new identity in and build up a whole new identity. And this one isn't your name, it's Jesus's name. Because you have believed in the name of God's one and only son. That's your new identity. If you want to find the peace you're looking for, if, if you're crawling around at night because it looks like you have everything together, but something doesn't quite fit, you're going to have to try letting go of the name you're building up, the identity you think you're building. And you have to trust me and take my name and my identity. That's why I get so skeptical when I, when I hear conversations or see things in the scripture that make it seem like, well, your job is to declare with your mouth very simply these few words, Jesus is Lord. And then you'll just like get to go to heaven, right? Because I feel like there's gotta be more to it than that. And Jesus seems to be telling me there is. That saying yes to God is a commitment to reshaping your identity, right? To be born again isn't about saying the magic words or avoiding hell. It is a commitment to having a whole new name. And I told you, Jesus uses this weird picture to describe this, but it's a whole commitment to reshaping your identity. And this is a very specific metaphor, isn't it? To be born Uh, In in fact, it's something we all experience, right? To have a birthday is something every single one of you have. 
but it's also something none of us can really quite grasp to have a rebirth day. Because <laughs> in our heads, that only happens just the once. But as a picture, I think I find it interestingly helpful. Think about a baby who's going to be born. In the womb, this baby is totally enveloped and surrounded by their mother. That paradoxically, it can't even see, can't even comprehend, can't have a concept of the mother. Its inability to see or picture its mother is caused because the mother is so all-encompassing and enveloping, not because she's not there. The mother is so present that she can't even be seen by the baby. To see its mother, the baby has to go through a change. It has to experience birth, which is an event, right? It's an all-encompassing event. It's physical, it's emotional, it's spiritual. It's not an intellectual idea you agree with. It's something that transforms you. So in order to see the mother, the baby has to be born has to go through that. So when I think about Nicodemus in the story, I look at a man who lives within a womb, a particular set of life experiences and rules and family systems and religious systems. He has all of this stuff that he is in the midst of that he probably doesn't even know or recognize. And then Jesus gives him this picture This picture of the only way to kind of wake up to God's identity for you is to be birthed out of that womb, is to come outside of that, to be transformed and to see with new eyes the God who's been present everywhere in ways that don't even make sense. To say yes to God is to make a commitment to come out of our small world and to see God in a much bigger and unique way. And I think Jesus' reply to Nicodemus is no small thing. It's all-encompassing and transformative. To Nicodemus, this challenges everything that he is. It's a direct threat to his role as a Pharisee, for example. To his role and identity as one of the wealthiest people in the country. But more than that, it's a direct threat to everything he thinks he knows. He truly does need to start over to reshape a whole new identity to be born again. Which, incidentally, I think is partly the Pharisees' problem throughout the whole gospel. The Pharisees, in particular, always had such a hard time with Jesus. In fact, like Jesus is talking to them, he's like, you are these teachers and you don't understand these things. Uh, You people, he talks about, just can't grasp this. But all throughout the Gospels, they seem unwilling or unable to sort of break out of their own culture, to break out of their own worldview, to break out of their own set of rules and expectations. To use Jesus' metaphor, these are people who seem like they just want to stay in the womb. They never want to come out of that. In Matthew 12, Jesus says this. It's this experience of what I think is true of the Pharisees. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law uh, said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Jesus, you're doing all this stuff. I want you to work within my identity, with my worldview. Because if we see a sign, then I know some things. That's my rules, my way of thinking. So Jesus, I'm going to test you in a test that makes sense to me. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. 
but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So they're saying Jesus fit into our understanding of God, our worldview. And he says, of course you guys think that way. But the only thing I'm going to talk about is this Jonah story. This famous story of Jonah being swallowed by a great fish. And in order for Jonah to do what God had called him to in that story, he had to spend the three days in the belly of the fish. He needed to sit in that darkness. He needed to sit in that space of reflection, of reordering his world and his identity, and then get vomited violently out of the fish. Or, as a metaphor, to be reborn to be born again, coming out of the darkness, even against his own will. So when Jesus illustrates this idea of saying yes to God, of committing our lives to him, of asking Jesus in our hearts or whatever you want to phrase it like, when Jesus talks about saying yes to God, he talks about rebirth. It's not just starting over, but a willingness to embrace whatever God wants to do with your identity. A willingness to make his name your identity, and your name smaller. His name greater, your name smaller. And if you are willing to say yes to that, then you will be able to make this commitment, the commitment to say yes to God. Saying yes to God and his kingdom and his identity in a way that's way bigger than we could ever know, that may be difficult for you. Right? It might be different than your existing worldview, and that's not an easy thing. Saying yes to God is not a simple thing. It often involves wrestling with our identity and who we are. Which is why, throughout all of our Harbor churches, one of the values that we have for people is that we are a church where you can belong before you have all that figured out. We are a church where you can belong while you're wrestling with what it means to believe. You are a church, or we are a church where you can belong before you believe. So with that in mind, I just want to name two things about being born again, about saying yes to God uh, as, as we end this, this sermon here. And the first thing is this. When I hear Jesus talk about being a born again, I notice that to be born again means that there is a period of incubation. To be born again means that there is this space of incubating. For you, that space could mean I'm nestled in the womb of a caring and loving, God-honoring family. And I've taken time to explore that, what that family holds its values and tested it with my own identity and wrestled with it for myself. That could be your incubation, right? For others of us, That incubation could feel like I'm trapped in the belly of a monster. And I've struggled and I've wrestled and I've tried to run away with God, but I'm still trapped here in this darkness. And that is my incubation. Either way, what I want you to know about commitment number one is that our yeses to God never come out of nowhere. Our yeses to God don't come out of nowhere. They come out of a season of wrestling or incubating. You know, uh, I have 
two teenagers, high schoolers, and the phrase that stuck with me comes out of slang, and, and it's sort of this thing where my kids are just saying, let them cook. I don't know if you've heard that, you teenagers. Just let them cook. Which means like, oh, he's just getting started. Let him go. Basketball players getting a hot hand. Let him cook. Right? There's some verbal sparring going on. Oh, let him cook. We got to cook. God gives us the opportunity to cook. To marinate. To incubate. To wrestle with this idea. And that is what I believe that the church is for. We are for people wrestling with this commitment. We create space so people can wrestle with this commitment to test it, to try on this new identity. How dare we ever create a reputation where we kick people out while they're still incubating? I'm sorry if you've ever felt like you're still wrestling and you don't belong because you don't believe the right things yet. That's not what the church is for. We are a people of death and resurrection. That means we sit with you in the belly of the fish. We, we help you as, and, and come near you in the womb when you're in the tomb for three days and three nights. We don't create the death, but we join you in the incubation, awaiting the resurrection. To be born again means there is a period of incubation. I, embr- I, I welcome you to embrace it, no matter how hard or, or great it might be. And then the second thing that seems so obvious to me, but to say yes to God, to be born again, means that there's also a birthday. There is a rebirth day. There is a moment. There is a day. Or maybe for you, there is a season, whatever that means for you, where you make a choice to make this commitment where you come out of the wrestling, where you choose to open your eyes, where you choose to come out of the tomb, where you choose to look upon your father and the love that he has for you and say, that's the identity I want to live into. And I'm going to leave my old self behind and embrace a new name. To be born again means there's a birthday. And if you can't name that specifically or even gradually, as I said, maybe it's a season for you, maybe it's time to do that. We often mark that moment of rebirth uh, with baptism. Uh, And perhaps God's invitation for you today is to say, you need to get in the water so you can name that moment where you took on a new name. To mark a moment where you said yes to God. And here's the cool thing about that rebirth in our understanding of the gospel that God gives to us is that that rebirth doesn't just happen one time. As I said, we are a people of death and resurrection. It happens continuously. Yes, there is a moment, there's a day, there's a season where we decide that God's kingdom has a better identity for me and I'm gonna take on that new name. And as I said, we we often mark that moment by publicly naming it, professing our faith and, and even getting baptized. We accept that new name, that new identity. But the more that we take on that new identity, the more we find we need to reorient ourselves to it. Again and again and again. And we mark that moment at the table, right? That's what the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is for. It's to come back out of that tomb again to say, you know what? I need to reorient and understand that new identity. I'm gonna go after that again. I'm gonna say yes again and again and again. And every time we come to the table, that's what we get to do. To say the old is gone and the new is come. That's why I believe that following Jesus is about way more than just 
mentally assenting or affirming something is true. It's way more than just, here's a magic being that might grow up in your life, or, or here's a way to get to heaven instead of going to hell. Saying yes to God is about reorienting around a whole new identity for a kingdom that's way bigger than what the world is you live in now. And that commitment, saying yes to that commitment, to a new name, to a new identity, saying yes to God, I believe is foundational to what holds the church together when nothing stays together. When we are people who say yes to that, suddenly we can come together in a way, in a a world where nothing comes together. So let me end with one more picture. Um, This one from science. Uh, have you ever heard of something that all humans, all creatures uh, have in their bodies called laminin? I mean, of course you have. Here's, the, here's what the National Library of Medicine says about laminin. Laminins are indispensable building blocks for cellular, cellular networks, physically bridging the intercellular and extracellular compartments and relaying signals critical for cellular behavior and for extracellular polymers determining the architecture and the physiology of basement membranes. You knew that, I'm sure. But I just learned it, right? Let me say this just for anybody else who's like, I thought I'd do that. Laminins are essentially the protein that hold all of your cells together. They're the glue, right? In biology, laminins are the proteins that hold you together. And that's its function. Uh, As an illustration, scientists have actually given a picture of it, and it looks kind of something like this, right? Kind of crazy, but at the microscopic level, some people would say you can see the shape of the cross. At the microscopic level, inside of your body, the thing that holds everything together is in the shape of the cross, And of course, I find it cute to say things like God wrote the cross into our very cells. And maybe he did, but that's not my point. That's not the point. The point is that without something holding us together, nothing will stay together. Your cells will move apart from each other. The church will, will come apart. For us in the church, what holds us together is the foundational commitment to the cross of Jesus Christ. That those who say yes to his identity, who are committing to be born again, will find something so much bigger than ourselves. And that's what holds us all together. So my encouragement to you today is to consider, what does it mean for you to say yes to God? What does it mean for you to take on a new name, a new identity, what does it mean for you to do that for the very first time or for the thousandth time? What do you need to do today to say, I'm leaving all of that old identity behind and I'm saying yes to what God has for me now. Let's pray together. Lord God, I'm grateful that we are not people who have to stay in the womb, that we are people who don't have to stay in the belly of the fish or in the grave because you provide us an opportunity for something new. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful for the grace that you give to us that we can wrestle with this idea before we even believe it. 
that your church, your bride can be the safe space where we can wrestle with our incubation, where we can wrestle with our identity before we make the choice to leave it behind. And God, I I pray that you would give us as people the grace to extend that to others. God, the thing that holds us together is you. May we become people who are committed to saying yes to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.